Savior God to thee. How great thou art, how great thou art. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee. How great thou art, how great thou art. And when I think that God his Son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it here. That on the cross my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died. To take away my sin Then sings my soul My Savior God to thee How great thou art How great thou art Then sings my soul My Savior God to thee How great thou art How great thou art when Christ shall come with shout of acclamation and take me home, what joy shall fill my heart? Then I shall bow in humble adoration and there proclaim, my God, how great thou art. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee. How great thou art, how great thou art. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee. How great thou art, how great thou art. They say sometimes you win some, sometimes you lose some. Right now, right now I'm losing back. Stood on the stage night after night, reminding the broken it'll be alright. Right now. Oh, right now I just can't It's easy to sing when there's nothing to bring me down What will I say when I'm held to the flame like I am right now? Good morning, Cypress Bible Church. My name is Tony Svensson. I'm the uh, Go Pastor. And as we gather this morning, it is our desire to worship God together in His church. And we're so grateful uh, for those of you who are joining us here this morning and for those of you who are joining us online. Uh, it's, a, it's a great honor and privilege as we get to uh, represent the living God, as we come together to worship Him. Uh, and we at CBC 
desire uh, to, to let you know that first and foremost, we are imperfect people, uh, but we desire to worship the holy God. And so no matter where you're at in that journey, uh, we believe that you can start exactly where you're at, beginning where you are and becoming more like Jesus is our, is our goal and our ambition as a church. And we do that through gathering and life-changing worship. Uh, we desire to grow in life-changing truth, and we go in life-changing mission. And so as we seek to do that together as a church, we pray that you would join us in that. Uh, if you are a visitor and you would like to ne- learn more about uh, how you can uh, learn more about these ministries and get involved, we'd be happy to talk to you. Uh, grab any one of the staff or somebody out here at the informational booth or just give us a call. We'd be happy to answer any questions uh, that you would have. Uh, so we, before we start our worship this morning, we do have a, a few announcements. We want to remind you about our Christmas giving. And so there are two opportunities for you to participate. And one of those is the Christmas blessing, uh, where you can bless families in need through financial gifts. Uh, and the other one is Operation Christmas Child. So we have the shoe boxes. Uh, some of you have already have those. You can use an existing shoe box, an old shoe box as well. And we'll be collecting those out here in the trailer. Uh, and the deadline for that will be next Sunday, November the 15th. So if you want to participate in that, uh, please go ahead and take care of that. The other thing we wanted to remind you of is this next week we will be resuming our time of devotional with the uh, pastoral staff and elders starting on November the 10th. That'll be Tuesdays and Thursdays. And so we pray that that will be a blessing to you and to your families. So as we begin our time of worship this morning, I want us to draw our hearts and minds together as we focus on the Lord God and offer him praise. Uh, I'm going to open us up with Psalm 47. I'll be reading verses 1 and 2, followed by verses 5 and 6. Clap your hands, all your nations. Shout to God with cries of joy. For the Lord Most High is awesome, the great King over all the earth. God has ascended amidst shouts of joy. The Lord amidst sounds of trumpet. Sing praise to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our King. Sing praises. For God is the King of all the earth. Sing to him a psalm of praise. Now the Lord, is our, it is our prayer that we experience the joy of his presence as we worship you, Lord, with thanksgiving. Oh, Lord, we want to see you. Friends, let's stand together as we bless the Lord with our praise.
you. We want to experience your presence, your goodness, your power and truth. And Lord, we want to offer you our praise. God is worthy of our praise. If he did nothing else for us until the day we see him face to face, we could spend the rest of our days praising him because of who he is and what he has already done. The song we are about to sing reminds us of this truth and then leads us in praise to the one who is worthy. It is important to remember that God's worthy of our praise all the time, not just in good times. Praise the Lord even when we struggle because it is often in times like these when we hear from Him the most. And these times are temporary. Listen to this reminder in Psalm 30 verse 5. Weeping may last for the night, but joy comes in the morning. So good times are bad, rain or shine, He is worthy of our praise. Listen to the words of Psalm 150. Praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty heavens. Praise Him for His acts of power. Praising for His surpassing greatness. Praise Him with the sounding of the trumpet. Praise Him with the harp and lyre. Praise Him with the timbrel and dancing. Praise Him with the strings and pipe. Praise Him with the clash of cymbals. Praise Him with the resounding cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Lift your voice to him. What holds your heart? What stirs your soul? What matters come to mind? Yes. The cares you keep, the thoughts you think, it's not always said in time. Seeking you will find. Joy still comes in the morning, hope still walks with the hurting. You're still alive. Praise the Lord. 
praise the Lord for he is great and worthy of praise. Do you believe that this morning? Let's sing this together. You give life, you are love, you bring light to the darkness, you give hope, you restore every heart that is broken. Now here it is. And great are you, Lord. It's your breath in our lungs. So we pour out our praise. We pour out our praise. It's your breath in our lungs. So we pour out our praise. You
together. Great are you, Lord. Great are you, Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning, everybody. We're so glad that y'all are here with us today. Uh, my name is Evan Wepler. I'm the elementary children's pastor here at CBC, and this is Avalyn Hermond, our early childhood director. And uh, we're just so excited because we are going to celebrate child dedication today. Um, this is a chance for us to celebrate as a church, uh, the families that are part of our church, and the children that are entering into our church family. Uh, and so as we celebrate and introduce each of these families, yeah, y'all can go ahead and grab your mics. Um, we want you guys to respond with joy and celebration, and so we'll have each chance, uh, each family will have a chance to uh, read a dedication, and uh, I will pray over each family, and I just ask you to celebrate and clap and cheer with me uh, as we celebrate this special day. Uh, every time we have child dedication, I like to read from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 7, and it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. Uh, we're especially learning that in this season where uh, we don't always get to all gather together, whether you're worshiping at home or worshiping here. Um, we know that we're having to find new ways uh, of continuing to help our children, our families gather together and grow in our faith. Uh, and so I'm so glad that we still get to celebrate child dedication. We have to get to have these moments together. Uh, and so I'm going to go ahead and let Miss Avalyn introduce our families that are here with us today. Okay. First up, we have the Aldhouse family. Uh, this is their first baby. Uh, this is Chad and Rachel Aldhouse. And this is Hudson Samuel Aldhouse. He was born April the 30th. He's six months old. And Chad and Rachel's desire is for Hudson that he would love Jesus, be a leader, set an example to others, and live a life of integrity. His parents describe him as becoming more and more social every day. He loves to smile and talk and is happy most of the time. He's a big boy who loves to eat, and he loves to look at picture books, listen to music, swing in the backyard, go for walks, and play with his parents. For Chad and Rachel, having their child dedicated at CBC is a blessing because CBC has been their home church since the beginning of their marriage, and it has become a part of their family. So I'm going to uh, let them do their blessing. Dear Hudson Samuel, the Bible verse we've chosen for your dedication is Romans 12:12. 12, 12. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. We've chosen this verse because this is the verse we clung to in hope of your arrival. God allowed us to go through a process of waiting for you which refined us and strengthened us in ways that we cannot accurately describe in words. We pray that you'll always be joyful in the ultimate hope of Christ's return. Our daily prayer, since we knew we were expecting you, is that you'll walk in his way of righteousness all the days of your life while setting an example for other believers. We pray that you'll be patient in whatever afflictions come your way as you live this life on earth that you recognize that God often uses our biggest trials to shape us and refine us. We also pray that you'll be faithful in prayer, trusting in God's perfect timing and his plan always. Despite the fear and anxiety that this year has brought, we have no doubt that God's timing for your arrival was perfect. And we hope to always remind you of his faithfulness to you as you remind us daily of his faithfulness to us. Today we bless you and we dedicate you to the Lord. 
So I'm going to go ahead and uh, pray over the outhouses. Would you pray with me? God, thank you so much for Chad and Rachel, uh, for the fact that they get to be part of this CBC family and for the ways that you've already worked in their lives and the way that you are uh, already working in the life of Hudson. Um, he is so blessed to have, uh, have these parents uh, as he grows up. Um, and the words that I hear in their prayer, their dedication, words of integrity and love and faithfulness and joy, I, I see that in Chad and Rachel. Um, and I just am so grateful uh, that we get to come around them and surround them as a church family and uh, help uh, model what the life of faith looks like uh, for Hudson. And so I just pray for your wisdom as they continue to raise him up and seek your will in his life. Um, as uh, good days come and hard days come, um, may they keep their hearts focused on you so that he might see what it's like to live a life fully dedicated to you. We thank you for this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, and our next family is the Hards family. Uh, they are dedicating today Lucy Elizabeth Hards. And she was born December 18, 2019, and she's just about 10 months old. Um, parents are Kirby and Christine, and older brother Oliver, three years old, who's in our toddler program here. Um, Lucy is described as a sweet 10-month-old girl. She's the cutest, she has the cutest toothy grin, loves to wrestle with her daddy and big brother on the bed, and is very attached to mom. Her favorite foods are peas, avocado, and grapes. A little girl that loves avocado, I like that. <laughs> and Kirby and Christine's desire for Lucy is that she comes to know the Lord at a young age and that she would shine brightly for him. For their family, having Lucy dedicated at CBC today means that they would like to honor the Lord in the way they parent Lucy, and they think that dedicating her at CBC is a beautiful way to represent their desire to train up a child in the way she should go, uh, Proverbs 22, 6. Lucy, uh, <clears throat> the Bible verse that we have chosen for your dedication today is 1 Peter 2, 9. And it says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. We've chosen this verse because your name, Lucy, means light. God brings you out of darkness into light through a, through a relationship with his son, Jesus. It is in this light that you will find the fullness of life. And we pray that one day you will find it. And through his redemption, you might also be a light to others. Today we bless you and we dedicate you to the Lord. I'm going to pray over the hearts. Would you join me? Thank you, God, so much for the joy uh, that I see before me as I see Lucy's smile just beaming. Um, just thank you for the light that you've already made her to be uh, and the ways you are still going to work through her as she grows up. And uh, so we pray for Kirby and Christine uh, and for Oliver uh, that they might all model what it means to, to seek you and to put you first in their lives. Um, I pray that Lucy is able to live out the meaning of her name, being a light that reflects your beauty and your goodness uh, and just shines with your love to everyone she's around. And so I just ask that the CBC family uh, gathers around the hearts and helps them raise up Lucy and Oliver, uh, helps them when they need it, um, have, provides teachers for them to help point them to Jesus uh, so that Lucy and Oliver uh, might come to know you uh, and have a relationship with you. We thank you so much for your grace and for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.
And so part of uh, dedication is uh, the parents are going to make a commitment as well. Uh, and so they're going to be reading uh, from the screens. If you want to look from the screens, uh, you can read from the commitment. And then church, we're going to be making a commitment to them as well. So I'll be reading this uh, with the parents as well. Uh, and so uh, here is the parent commitment. We recognize that children are a gift from God, and as parents, we have the responsibility to prepare our child for life. We affirm the most important preparation for life involves their own relationship to God through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Because of this, we commit to the following. Next slide. We commit to model for our child what becoming more like Jesus looks like to pray for our child regularly, to instruct and guide our child in their understanding of what it means to become more like Jesus. And so, uh, family, uh, I'd like you to be making this commitment with us as well. And so would you go ahead and stand up with us? And so this is our uh, church commitment. We recognize our role as a church family is to walk beside these families to pray for them, to encourage them, to be good models of those becoming more like Jesus, and as God prompts us to participate in the care and instruction of these children and parents through our own personal ministry and the ministries of the church. God, thank you so much for these families, these children, this church. Help us come together in your name so that we might glorify you and put you first in all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. stand together.
you guys can be seated. Good morning, church fam. How are y'all today? Awesome. It's so great to be able to be here, witness children getting dedicated and singing songs of worship and learning from the Word. And so I'm so glad y'all are here today. I'm going to start off thinking about this. Uh, so we all, as a parent, or a future parent, or what we've seen in TV shows and movies, know that part of the process of raising a child is having the talk one day, right? And this talk is a part of the process of maturation for your child. This talk is an uncomfortable conversation. This talk is a conversation that we don't really look forward to having, but it's something that must be done. Similar to that, I believe churches need to have this talk sometimes on certain issues and certain things in order to maintain the holiness of the bride of Christ, the church body. Because today, the church community, church looks a little different than how it was done in the first century. Some things are better, and then some things I believe are also a little worse. For example, uh, I think one of the things that is lacking today in our busy culture is the, the lack of an intimate, serious, covenant type of commitment that a church body should have. I think that there is a lack of intimate, personal fellowship, that there is a lack of participation. And so we need to have a talk about these things. Nowadays in this era of tolerance, a word that is used a lot in churches nowadays, we need to understand that there is a difference in the word tolerant and the word love, that they can't be equal to each other, and doing so can lead to dangerous things. We're going to study that and talk about that in the next couple of chapters in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and 6. A little background to what's going on at the church at Corinth. There's a lot going on actually. And so there are reports that come to Paul about the happenings of this church. And we've covered the first report over the last few weeks in regards to um, reports of division that there is uh, people that think highly of themselves. There are people that value themselves more than others in the church community. There are people that think the ones they follow within their church are better than others. And Paul responds harshly, but in a loving way. Paul responds with sarcasm, actually, to these people. He tells them that they shouldn't think so highly of themselves, that they really shouldn't uh, consider themselves that special. As Pastor John said last week, we're all just scum. And so because of that, Paul is dealing with a second report now in these new chapters in 5 and 6. That there are some chapters that, because of the arrogance of the Corinthian church, they, can, they kind of looked away from or they kind of disregarded. And Paul has wanted to cover these very serious things because what is going on is actually tainting the name of not just the church, but the body of Christ, Jesus, God. And that's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at this. So in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, Paul writes this, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not even tolerated, even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Paul opens up immediately saying, It is actually reported this response that he has, I can't believe this is going on. Are you kidding me? Are you serious? This is unbelievable. I can't believe this is going on. He is dismayed and shocked at what is being reported. 
And so what is being told to him is by a concerned church member. So if it's being reported to Paul, this is something that is being made known, that is observed by not just those in the church, in the Corinthian church, but those that are outside the church as well. They see what is going on. And what it is? There's sexual immorality. Now let me tell you, sexual immorality is defined as any sexual behavior outside of what God intended between a man and wife, a husband and wife. And so because of this, Paul tells them, this is something what's going on in your church isn't even tolerated by the pagans. Paul is giving a reference to Leviticus 18.8, which says, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is your father's nakedness. And so understanding that this is banned in Jewish law, even in Roman law, this was something that was unacceptable. Even non-believers like, that's gross, bro. Are you kidding me? And so to understand also has has means that this is something that has been ongoing. This isn't just a one-time meeting that had. This is an ongoing affair that this guy just doesn't care about that goes to this church, that is a part of this church family. This mom, if you look at the Greek, is actually translated, you can be interpreted as, as his stepmom. Not that that makes it any better, because this is an incestuous affair. And in verse 2, And you are arrogant. You are proud and boastful thinking about how amazing you are. Because of your arrogance, you have now overlooked this sin. You have overlooked this disgusting behavior. Because you are not addressing it means you are commending it. Means you are okay with it. You are letting this guy choose to do what he wants. Now, you may think because of this freedom in Christ that you have that you're showing the world, like, look at all the great things you can do in Christ. But that's not what freedom in Christ is. And we're going to talk about that in a second. Because of their ignoring of this behavior, they're saying that they're proud of this guy's behavior in their church family. So again, here the church, thinking that they're demonstrating what freedom in Christ looks like, they forget about the words in Romans 6, 1 and 2, which reads, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it see freedom in christ is not a license to sin freedom in christ is being able to live your life as a believer never wondering am i good enough am i going to get into heaven does god love me all right christian writer alfred martin says salvation is from sin not to sin we need to remember that freedom in christ doesn't mean we get to sin freedom in christ means we can say no to sin that we have overcome sin because of jesus Paul responds to this after accusing them of being arrogant. Ought you rather not to mourn? Because that is what a believer's response to sin must be. It must be sorrow. There must be grief. We see in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Because a believer's response to sin, doing something that goes against Christ, should be mourning. Sin is not something we celebrate as believers. Sin is something that we mourn, we reap, and we have grief over. Paul says, let us, let him who has done this be removed from among you. This guy needs to be removed from fellowship with you all. This guy needs to be taken away because he is doing bad things and this is tainting your church's name. We call this church discipline. Church discipline is not something that is fun to talk about. It is not something churches like to address, especially in today's day and age. But we're going to talk about it because it's in the Bible. So what is church discipline? 
Well, from my theological encyclopedia, it said this. It is the process of correcting sinful behavior among members of a local church for three purposes. To protect the church, number one. Number two, to restore the sinner to a right walk with God. And number three, for renewing fellowship amongst church members. So who is church discipline? What is it, who is it for? Well, it's for church members. It's for those highly involved in their church it's not for those that attend church inconsistently. It's not for non-members. And it's not for unbelievers. It's very important that we understand this is for believers who are living in perpetual, unrepentant sin. And they are proudly displaying it in an outward action. We even see in this passage that Paul addresses this man only, not this stepmom, because the reality is that she's probably not a church member or she's not a believer. You deal with the believer in this. And so we as church members need to understand that there is a difference in that. And so what is the purpose of church discipline? We said that earlier. It's to maintain the holiness of the church. Holiness of the church. We, it's to restore the believer to a correct relationship with God and then to a right relationship with his fellow brothers and sisters. Well, that seems kind of harsh, doesn't it? But if we remember the context of what's going on, this is a man living in perpetual unrepentant sin. You're going to help hear me repeat that phrase a lot of times because that is what is going on. Well, what would Jesus say about that? Isn't, isn't church about love and tolerance and grace? Jesus wouldn't ever remove anyone. He's too nice. That's not nice. Well, Jesus says some very specific things about that in the Gospel of Matthew, which we're going to talk about in a second. Because this new progressive Christianity moment that is creeping into our churches affecting the holiness will say things like, there should only be love. But we need to remember that discipline is motivated by love. Where's the grace? Well, the grace was on the cross when Jesus died for that very sin that is being committed. Well, God is love. Yes, I agree wholeheartedly God is love, but God is holy. God is holy. That is who he is. The perception of God has changed in this day and age. We only want to talk about the nice parts of God. Our approach to him has changed. We want to see the gentle side. We, we, we want to treat him kind of like he's a giant teddy bear. And he's not a teddy bear. He's not a panda bear. He's God. He is holy. Phrases like, thou shalt tolerate anyone, everybody's lifestyle, are used in the church repeatedly nowadays. That's not maintaining holiness, though. Even people say in Matthew 7, judge not lest ye be judged yourself. Taking passages out of context to avoid uncomfortable conversations. We need to understand that being church is a very serious thing. The holiness of God is a very serious thing. Paul even mentioned it earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 when he said that the church is a holy community, one that is set apart from the world. Therefore, it should not look or act like the world. Church discipline is given in the word. Therefore, it cannot be ignored. And so we have to take all of the word of God when we apply it because that is what God's plan is. Just like when we worship God, we worship him for all his attributes, not just the ones we like. It's like this. I love Lucky Charms, right? But the reason we like Lucky Charms is why? Because of the marshmallows. And so I remember growing up, it was a special treat if we got, we usually got like, the generic knockoff brand, but if we got the real Lucky Charms, it was a treat. And I remember I would go in like on a Saturday morning before my sisters would wake up, and then I would get the cereal, open it up, uh, pour the cereal into my bowl, and the first thing I would do is pick all the marshmallows out, because that's what I wanted. 
And then I would take that nasty, I don't know what is even in that cereal, it's just disgusting. And I would put it back in the bag, bless my sisters with that. But I share this because that is how we treat God. I like your attribute of love. I like your attribute of mercy. But your attribute of wrath and holiness, eh, they make me a little uncomfortable. I don't know if I want that. Well, let me reassure you, when you pick and choose which attributes of God you want to choose to worship, you've created an idol. You've created an idol. And so we must worship God for his holiness. The church must follow the holiness of God. So Paul continues, because he has a lot more to say about this. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord, Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Paul is saying, I'm not there with you because it's known that he was in Corinth while he was writing this letter. But he's present in spirit. And what he's wanting to remind them, hey, you're a Christian, I'm a Christian, the Holy Spirit is indwelt as a Christian, so therefore we are united as one. So even though I'm not physically there with you, I am there with you in spirit. And this can give you the freedom and the peace that I am there with you as you have to make this decision. Because perhaps the church might think we can't make a decision without Paul being here. So he has given them the freedom to go ahead, hey, you need to remove this guy. He's already pronounced judgment. In the middle of writing this letter, that escalated kind of quickly. But also, because Paul founded the Corinthian church, he had the apostolic authority given to him by Jesus to make such a decision. Because we have to remember the church was being tainted. People outside the church walls, unbelievers could see, hey, their lives don't look any different than mine. It's not a good thing. But when it comes to church discipline, there is a process. There is a process that Jesus gives very clearly in Matthew 18, verses 15 to 17. And it says this, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two brothers along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile, and a tax collector. You have this step-by-step process to church discipline. So the first step, it's on an individual level, a one-on-one, and it's done in a private setting. So when you see a sinning brother, you don't walk to him loudly, hey, Joe, I see you sitting out loud. Uh, We're going to have a conversation. No, you address him in a private conversation. That is the scriptural way to approach it. And if nothing happens, if his behavior and actions don't change, if there's no repentance, then you bring two or three brothers. You bring three, two or three Christian brothers. You don't bring random people. You bring brothers because they know the standard that needs to be held. And they can be a witness to what's going on in this conversation. After that, if nothing changes, okay, we're going to go to the church. We're going to go to church leadership now. We're going to let them know what's going on. And if nothing changes, there's no repentance, there's still perpetual sin, then you kick them out of fellowship. You treat him as an outsider. The church needs to do this to disassociate with his unholiness. But also, there's a fifth step. It's restoration. Because if anything, understand that the purpose of church discipline is restoration. It's not to be vengeful. 
It's not to get even with someone. It's to restore him to a right fellowship with God and a right fellowship of man. It's even made clearer in 2 Corinthians 7 when Paul gives instruction to this church to restore a repentant sinner into fellowship. He says, restore them. They've repented. Be a family again. Keep loving him. As Tony said earlier, we're not a church of sinless people. The church is a body of forgiven sinners who choose to do life together and pursue holiness together, to pursue looking like Jesus Christ together. That's what a church is. Paul tells them in verse 4 that they're to do this as they are assembled together. So this is a a public setting. This is a specific moment. This is a time that uh, the setting must be right because the whole church needs to know what's going on, that they have chosen to remove this person from fellowship because it takes the whole church to make sure they're not associating with him, but also because it takes the whole church to pray for this man, to pray for him, for the spirit, to grieve him and convict him so he will be repentant. When it comes to a sinner, removing them begins in private and then ends up in public because everyone needs to be on the same page. Paul confirms in verse 5 what's to happen. You deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Three very impactful statements. You hand him over to Satan, right? Let us hand over this man for the destruction of his flesh. So the removal of him from fellowship is what is the result of church discipline. The removal of this also removes the protection of the church from him. It opens him up more for attack from Satan, When we are believers, we have chosen our allegiance, shown our allegiance is to Jesus. But when you're living in unrepentant, perpetual sin, you have shown that your allegiance is still to Satan. And so all we're doing is let him be where he wants to be. That's what it means to hand him over for the destruction of his flesh, the destruction of the sin nature. This is very similar to the story of the prodigal son where he goes out and he lives into all of his carnal desires to the point to where he runs out of everything, there's suffering, maybe there's physical suffering, emotional suffering, definitely spiritual suffering, but to the point to where he's so broken down that he recognizes, I am empty. All these selfish desires, all this carnal living has done nothing for me. The destruction of the flesh is to make him long for the day that he remembers when he was baptized into this church family, when he placed his saving faith in Jesus Christ, when there was joy and peace and harmony with his church family. That's the purpose of the destruction of the flesh, is for restoration. We even say that there, so his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. This isn't insinuating that this sin is going to cause him to lose his salvation. Because the word of God is very clear, once saved, always saved. What this is saying is that in his repentance, he will be confident as he stands before God. That he is back in right fellowship with one another. This is a reminder that the, the ultimate purpose and intention of church discipline is for Redemption. So Paul continues in verses 6 to 8. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul addresses their boasting again. 
And so up to this point, Paul has addressed their boasting multiple times all the way through. And so that it serves as a warning for us as a church to never be too proud, to never be too arrogant in anything. Paul is now given a theological reason of why church discipline is necessary. And he gives an analogy back to the Passover festival. Right? We learned that uh, before the Israelites were freed from Egypt, they celebrated the Passover. And so the process of this uh, they, they had to go through a process to purify their homes. And so in that, seven days prior to Passover, you had to remove all the leaven out of your house in order for it to be purified. Not even one speck or powder of leaven can be in your house. All of it has to be gone. I'm not a baker, I'm sorry. Because sin will spread very quickly just as leaven spreads. Right? A tiny amount of evil will permeate very quickly throughout the entire household, will permeate very quickly throughout an entire church body. You've got to get rid of it. You've got to get rid of it. And Paul reminds them that the church has to do the same. And so continuing this analogy, he reminds the Corinthian church where they stand positionally as Christians, as new unleavened bread. Because they were leavened, they were sinful. They had no hope. But because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, they are now unleavened. They are pure. They are righteous. Because they believe that Jesus is Lord, because that he be, they believe that he became God incarnate through the virgin birth of Mary, they believe that he died on the cross for sins of all time, past, present, and future. They believe that because he's God, he resurrected three days later. They are righteous and pure and unleavened. No more leaven is in them at all. And because of that, in verse 8, they can celebrate the festival. As Israel was delivered from Egypt, we are delivered from death. We are delivered from sin. So let us celebrate in a great way, in a joyous way. Let us celebrate the victory. That is what we're celebrating. The victory of the Christian life as we aim to become more like Jesus as we pursue the holiness of God individually and as a church body. So how do we celebrate? By removing the old leaven, right? Malice and evil. And so not only is the one-time payment done when we become believers that we are removed from that, but there is a daily aspect that we also have to do. We have to repent on a daily basis, self-examine on a daily basis, make sure we are walking well, walking in correct fellowship with God and man. So you've got to remove the malice and evil that's in you. And to do that, you walk as an unleavened bread. A new bread, you're a new loaf. And so because of that, you walk in sincerity and truth. You have right, sincere motives for everything that you do, for proper worship. You pursue holiness with all that you have. You live with integrity, a conduct which is in accordance with the morality given to us by Jesus. That's what the new bread does. So understanding that immorality was unacceptable in the Corinthian church, we have to recognize immorality is unacceptable in churches today as well. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now, I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty or sexual of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. Verses 9 and 10. I wrote to you to not, a, a, not interact with those who are sexually immoral. So 
this is 1 Corinthians. How did he write another letter before that? Well, it's been made known through Christian scholars and, and others that, um, that there are multiple letters written to the Corinthian church, but only two were canonized. And so apparently in this first letter that was written, Paul addressed sexual immorality, which even further confirms why you can't understand his frustration and upsetness with what's going on, because he already told them what not to do. This shows that the church either misinterpreted or ignored what Paul wrote in that previous letter. And so Paul gives a clarification point in verse 10. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. He teaches them to understand that you don't do church discipline on unbelievers, people that are outside your Christian fellowship, your church fellowship. But he's also saying you don't avoid contact with them either. Because if you avoid contact with the immoral people, who's going to preach to them Christ crucified? How are they going to hear Christ crucified? Who's going to let them know that there's a guy named Jesus that could save them from hell? To avoid these people, you would literally have to go out of this world. That is the illustration of you. You literally cannot be on this planet Earth if you want to avoid that. How are you going to be the salt and light if you avoid that? You can't. Challenges that are given. There's this quote by Christian writer Harry Ironside, and he says this, The church of God is largely afraid to exercise discipline today. But where this is carried out in obedience to the word of God, the church is kept in a condition where God can work. God will work in a church and show you how to live out these things and these principles well if you choose to honor his word and live into holiness. So he confirms now, let me tell you who you are to disassociate with. Going back to verse 11. Don't associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of all these sins. Right? Don't associate with believers who are living in unrepentant, perpetual sin. And he gives this list. This isn't, these aren't the only sins you avoid if you're the brother. This is, this is a comprehensive list, not a suggestive list. And so here you go. If they're sexual, sexual immorality, stay away from them. If they're greedy, they're swindlers, they're idolaters, stay away from them. If they're drunkards, they're, if they're people that are verbally abusive, if they're gossips, stay away from them. That's the way you keep the leaven away from you. That's how you stay away from keeping from keeping the church unholy. Literally one who bears the name of brother. Don't even eat with them. We all love food. Food has been very popular since the creation of man. And so to not have fellowship with someone over food, there is always a sense of loss. That has been a sense of loss that we have had as a church community, as a church family, that we haven't been able to eat as a family together. Even more so then, that was a key part of Christian fellowship, that they would sit together, they would break bread, study the word, and worship God together. I imagine the early church invented the word potluck. This is my thoughts. But excluding the sinning brother would show him the seriousness of what has done, what he's done, what's going on. This would be a significant loss for him. Or what do I have to do with judging outsiders in verse 12? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Paul reminds them in verse 12, we have no business pronouncing judgment on those outside the church. We have no business telling unbelievers that they should live like Christians. 
Why? Because they literally don't know how to live as a Christian. They don't have the Holy Spirit inside them to teach them how to discern what is wrong and right, what is holy and holy, what is moral and immoral. So how are we going to tell someone to act like a Christian when they don't know who Jesus is? Paul's very clear about that. No, you pronounce judgment on those inside who you can hold accountable because the Holy Spirit should be convicting them at the same time. I can see in the arrogance of the Corinthian church, though, they would naturally stand outside and point shamedly at the people walking around saying, look at these losers and idiots who walk like heathens. But we're not going to deal with the sin in our own church body. Now imagine it's today. Because unfortunately, we see lots of Christians like to pronounce judgment on this world. Well, this world would be a lot better if they would act like Jesus. They don't know Jesus. Maybe you should go tell them about Jesus. Very convicting stuff. Very hard lessons to talk about. These are not always the fun Sunday lessons you want to preach through, but these are the lessons that are what make us form into our holiness of God even more so. God will judge those who don't believe in Jesus. But you need to purge this evil person from among you right now immediately. He's using a reference to Deuteronomy 17.7 where the Israelites would purge the wicked idolaters and, and sinners from the fellowship of the Israel community. They were to get rid of them in order to protect Israel. So to protect the church at Corinth, you had to get rid of this person. This is what you do with the unrepentant sinner. You discipline him, though, because you love him. And so I want to give you this quote by Warren Wearsby. I love this quote. This, this is something we should all always think about. Church discipline is not a group of pious policemen out to catch a criminal. Rather, it is a group of broken-hearted brothers and sisters seeking to restore an erring member of the family. We're broken-hearted because the person looks like the world and not the church. That's why we have to worship God for everything that he is. Take the entire word so that the church and the world don't blend. So the only way to do this today, well, there's multiple ways, but I want you guys to remember this. Keep the church holy. Our priority is to keep this church holy, to keep her free from stains. Her holiness is our aim. Peter writes this in 1 Peter 1.15, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because confronting sin is not optional. It is essential. And then discipline Church discipline is for restoration. Like I said earlier, it's not about being vengeful. It's not about getting even with someone. It's about restoring them because you love them. It is an act of loving kindness to restore them to their church body. Now, what this means for us is this doesn't mean all of a sudden now we're, we need to become the busybody and start calling out everyone's sin, right? Don't start looking for specks in other people's eyes when you've got a log in yours. But it is to lovingly correct who needs to be corrected. Because a lack of holiness amongst God's people will mean that when a stranger walks into your church family or into your church, all they're going to see is a reflection of the world instead of a reflection of Jesus. And that is why holiness matters.
receive these words from Ephesians as we look to live a life in a pursuit of holiness. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Have a blessed week. Will I cherish thee? Will I honor thou my soul's glory?